out this morning, and good to be here on this Sunday. Got some nice cool weather, maybe going to get some rain later. It's a good Sunday to worship the Lord and to open uh, His Word and to study a portion of it. Let me put this uh, mic on here and get this uh, PowerPoint going. If you will, while I'm doing that, be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to begin our lesson this morning. Okay, let's go from the beginning there. I don't think we have anyone on WebEx. Luke chapter 4. Okay, there we go. Uh, The lesson this morning is going to be called, He Closed the Book. Luke chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 16. And we'll read through verse 21. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and beginning. or Luke, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16 and running through verse 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He rolled up the scroll, the ESV says, the King James and the New King James both say he closed the book. Um, It was not a book like uh, we think of today with the kind of bindings we think of. Uh, and so he, he rolled up the scroll is, is probably more accurate uh, to the historical context. But there's something to that image of Jesus closing the book. We all know if we're readers, the satisfaction of you get to the end of a book and you shut it and it's complete. You've taken it all in. You're at the end of the book. It, there is a finality to it. And... I think it bears looking at the context of what Jesus is reading there, and that's found in Isaiah chapter 64. Jesus closes the book in this passage by reading this selection from Isaiah. He closes the book on messianic prophecy. I'm moving it here, but uh, not on my, uh, not on the, uh, where's the the clicker, Mark? Oh, it is. Sorry. Got it. Um, He closes the book on Messianic prophecy with the reading of this passage that we we find in Isaiah chapter 61. Um, It doesn't appear to be. Okay, I'll have to just do it this way. No big deal. Um, So he closes the book on Messianic prophecy, and and let's, let's look at Isaiah 61 real quick. Isaiah 61 and verses 1 through four. And this is just one of many prophecies that foretold 
the Messiah, but it is, uh, it is one that sort of stands in for the whole in sort of the, uh, the, the general terms that it paints uh, of what the Messiah will do and what his purpose will be. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, where the prophet Isaiah, the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has, a, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's the point at which Jesus stops in Luke. But going on through verse 4, the original context says, And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that, they may be that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So we see here the prophecy in Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4. We see the fulfillment in Luke 4 verses 16 through 21. And if you look at the original context of this prophecy, it is that there will be good news proclaimed to the poor. There will be healing or binding up for the brokenhearted. There will be liberty for the captives and the opening of prisons. And the year of the Lord's favor will be proclaimed. There is this idea of the vengeance of God in connection with comfort, which is a little bit of a strange idea, that God's vengeance brings comfort. And, and we'll come back to that maybe at the end a little bit. But to grant those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress, gladness instead of mourning. The image that's painted here is that everything is going to be turned around. Why? So that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Well, who's the they there? Well, if we view this in terms of, of messianic prophecy, the they is us. We are the oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that He may be glorified. We are the ones building up the ancient ruins. We are repairing the former devastations. We are repairing the ruined cities of many generations. And it's through the power of Christ that we do so. And this is just indicative of one of the many ways that Jesus shuts the door on uh, and closes the book on this sort of messianic prophecy by proclaiming himself the one who fulfills it. Turning back to Luke 4 now, um, Jesus uh, rolls up the scroll, sits down. The implication there is sits down to teach. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them in verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So that is, um, well, the kids today might, might say that, that, that they might call that a flex, right? <laughs> that is a, 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 quite a boast, you could say, when you read a, a prophecy out loud and say, I have fulfilled it here in your hearing. That's what Jesus does uh, in, in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah has come 
and the proclamation of good news to the poor, the, the setting free of the captives, the recovering of the sight of the blind, has begun. This is Jesus' announcement uh, of his Messiahhood. And in doing so, he shuts the door on all the uh, foreshadowings of a Messiah to come. But this isn't the only thing that Jesus closes the book on. And I seized on this phrase in, in, this, in this passage and, and thought you could take it in several other, generation, in several other directions as well. Um, so Jesus shuts the book on messianic prophecy. Certainly, we see here. Jesus also has shut the book on sin and death. I keep forgetting I have to use this. Jesus has shut the book on sin and death. He is not only the Messiah, but the Christ. The Messiah uh, is uh, linked with uh, this Hebrew idea of a savior, of a liberator who would come and set free the people of Israel. The Christ has to do with this idea of the anointed one, the one uh, who will uh, deal with sin and with death once and for all, the chosen one of God who will correct the problem of sin, which we've been discussing at some length in our Romans class on, on, on Wednesday night. Um, Jesus is Christ because he took care of this problem. He first bore our sins. We understand that this is something that the Messiah was prophesied to do in Isaiah 53. If you still have your finger in Isaiah, if you could turn back to Isaiah 53, where it says in verse 4 through verse 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that, is, that, brought, that brought us peace, and, the wounds, and, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our sins on himself. He bore our griefs and our afflictions. And what does this mean for us? If we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2... Peter writes uh, in verse 24. Peter, First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Peter says, actually starting in verse 23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus not only took our sins on himself, but he did so so that we might live in righteousness and that we might be healed. We were straying like sheep and he brought us into his care, into his oversight. This is what Christ has done for us. And he died the death that was coming to us. This is something we've talked about in, in, in Romans class. But we'll go quickly here to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I'll start in verse 6. And read 
through verse 11. Romans 5, verse 6 through verse 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The problem of sin is dealt with, and not only that, we're brought to be reconciled with God. We dwell with Him. We live with Him. And if we were brought into this relationship while we were still sinners, how much more will we be glorified in Christ? Will we share in His glory in Christ? He bore our sins. He died for us. He died the death we deserved while we were still sinners. And He laid in the grave that we made for ourselves with our sin. In Genesis 2 and verse 2, we don't have to, to turn all the way back unless you just want to. Um, well, l l let's go back to Genesis 2 and verse 2 because it, it, it is something, it's a connection that I find is not often made with our Lord, but it is, it is quite important, I think. Uh, Genesis 2 and verse 2 it says that when God had finished his creation, in verse 2, on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Our Lord, in uh, creation, complete, did the work that was good, that was required, that was valuable, um, and he declared it good following every step of creation, and when it was completed, he rested. Our Lord came then to earth in the Christ. And he did a work while he was here. Teaching us and showing us how to live. And bringing us into a new covenant with him. In which our sins are able to be forgiven. In which we're able to actually have communion with God the Father through Christ. And when that work was complete. When he had been nailed to that cross. And the blood had been spilled, and we had been brought into his covenant. He rested from his labor. He laid in the grave on the seventh day, and he raised again on the first day. Turn to Mark chapter 16. We, we read this several weeks ago, but it's, it's worth reading again. It's, it's affecting. Because... God's rest in creation um, is symbolic and institutes the Sabbath um, and teaches us an important lesson uh, about God's place in, in His creation and His designs and, and what it means for us, how, how we are to live our lives. And the ancient Jews took that and, and, and internalized the idea of the Sabbath to a great degree. The Sabbath was holy. The Sabbath was revered. The Sabbath was the day of rest. But there's an end to the rest in Christ because his work is completed and not even the rest of death could hold him. Mark 16, verses 1 through 16. 
When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to him and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, he saw, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus could not be held by the power of death. And the death which was created by our sin, by the sin of all mankind, was not worthy of him, could not hold him, could not bind him. And he was raised from the dead and declared both Lord and Christ by the power of his resurrection. And his resurrection, we're told by the Apostle Paul, is a first fruits for us. It is an indication for us the kind of resurrection with which we will be raised. And through studying his resurrection, we can better understand our resurrection. But when Peter, in, in, in Acts chapter 2, and we'll turn there and read that, Acts chapter 2 and verse 26, concludes his, uh, his sermon um, on Pentecost... And I actually, uh, I've got the wrong verse up here. It should be Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. My apologies there. Um, he concludes his sermon in Acts chapter 2 uh, by saying this, um, starting in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing speaking in tongues, this great display that's going on at, at Pentecost. 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David said, Way back, almost uh, a millennium before Christ's coming, he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus raises the question at one point in his ministry of, Who would have been David's Lord? What's, what's David talking about here? And no, none of the, the religious leaders of the time have, have a good answer. And Jesus uh, indicates to them that this is speaking of the Messiah. David's Lord is Jesus the Christ. And, David sa and Christ says to David before his coming, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. When was that accomplished? When were the enemies of David made a footstool? It was when Jesus was raised from the dead and declared the victor for all time. And now, the enemies we struggle against, we remember always, or we should remember always, they have already been made a footstool of God. They have already been conquered. They've already been defeated. 
Sin and death is defeated by the resurrection of our Christ. We have nothing more to fear. He has done the work for us. He has closed the book on sin and death. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is also the King. He has closed the book on the powers of darkness. We, we, we started getting into this just, just a moment ago, but, but there is a great spiritual war and there is a struggle that, 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 that goes on and it affects everything around us. And so we see the workings of Satan all the time. We see uh, evil things in the world. We see uh, people being treated poorly. We see people not behaving as they should. We see people treating others not like the divine image of God that they are. And we know, again, we've been studying this in Romans, that this is the result of uh, spiritual powers warring with one another and trying to use us as chess pieces in this uh, struggle that's going on. But it's important to keep in mind that the struggle is not really a struggle. Satan has been defeated. He was defeated finally at Calvary. Christ is the final answer to every human problem and every pain and every evil caused by the working of Satan. But Satan is not content to be condemned forever. He is not condemned to be resigned to the lake of fire, or he is not resigned to be condemned to the lake of fire, but rather he's seeking people to take with him. He's seeking collateral damage. We see this in 1 Peter, if you'll turn there. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're told to still be on guard. Verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter chapter 5. We are to be on guard for Satan who is described as a roaring lion. Chapter 5 and start verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter. Actually, I'll begin in verse 6 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are to be expected by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan will try us. Satan seeks to pry us away from the great gift that we've been given in Christ. That's the greatest victory he can achieve, is prying one more soul away from the grace and mercy that Christ has assured us of. But that's a comfort too, isn't it? Nothing can separate us from the glory of Christ unless we are willing to be separated from it. We have final victory assured in Christ. And there are many places we could go to affirm this. But one of the places I think it's good to go to um, and encouraging to go to to affirm this is Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 where, we, where it is described for us how we have been equipped for this struggle. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Starting in verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day having done, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the, breast, the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So Paul says here in this section where he talks about the armor of God, we share in the Lord's strength and in his power. That's what it means when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, how do we do that? What are the components of that? Well, Paul says you could think of it as you might think of a, a suit of armor. There is a piece, an equipment for every need that you have. You have uh, a... Uh, you have a, a, belt, a belt of truth which holds everything together. The truth of the gospel is at the center of everything. You have a breastplate of righteousness which covers your, your, your vitals, keeps you alive, sharing in the righteousness of Christ. You have on your feet the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now that's, that's one that's interesting to try to, to break down. But I think it's something like when we understand the gospel, when we've internalized the gospel, there is no situation that we are ill-equipped to handle. We may think that we are, but we have the answers. We have the tools. We're ready. We just need to put on our shoes, so to speak, and be ready to get at it. Um, it the, the answers are within us. We just have to let them out. And we take up the shield of faith, which it says can extinguish all the darts of the evil one. Remember, that word faith is, in, is connected with the idea of trust. Our trust that we have in the Lord is a shield. There is no dart that Satan can throw at us which can pierce it. And we have protecting our heads the helmet of salvation, which is assured. Your head is the most important part of your body. If you have a severe injury to your head, it's over. Game over. So it's interesting then that our helmet is salvation. We've been assured. We confidently expect to be protected, to be unashamed. We have nothing to fear. We don't have to worry about uh, the, sword of, of, uh, the swords of the world or, or Satan cutting off our head. Our head is secure in our salvation. And our sword is the spirit, which is the word of God. 
the spirit which inspired the holy men of ancient past, the spirit which inspired the New Testament writers, is the spirit that we use as our offensive weapon. Every high thing, every pretension can be shot down with the word, which is the sword. It's able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, Hebrews says. I read all that to say we've been given the tools that are required to win this struggle. It's not through our power. It's through making the power of Christ our own. Through letting him into our hearts and letting him fill us up with his qualities. That's how we put on the whole armor of God. That's how we contend with Satan and we're able to stand. It's through his power. We've not just been assured victory. We've not just been given the tools we need to achieve victory. But we've been promised not just victory, but a reign of peace in Revelation 21 and verse 4. Describing the end of all things um, and where all of this is headed, the writer of Revelation says in verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Not just victory, but peace. The cessation of all the evil and all the conflict that is the result of Satan and his workings in this world. We will be finally at peace, unbothered by sin, by pain, by death. We will dwell without barrier with our Savior forever. At Christ's death, the veil in the temple was pierced, was torn, symbolically representing the end of division between God and man. The dwelling place of God is with man. And we look and long for that time when all tears and all death will be no more and we will dwell in perfect peace with him. And in the meantime, all the evil, all the unpleasantness that we see are the death rattles, the death pangs of Satan himself. He is futilely knocking over furniture when he's been consigned to be thrown into the lake of fire. He's damaging uh, the precious things of God, and this is something to be on watch for, on guard for. He's seeking to destroy those who belong rightfully in their dwellings with God and with Christ. And so it's a serious thing, the, 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 the struggle with Satan and the struggle with sin. But we have to keep in mind, the war has been won. Any battles that we're involved in here, we understand 
Reinforcements are coming. There will be a final victory. Christ will conquer everything that does not conform itself to the righteousness of God and the truth that he has revealed. The powers of darkness and sin are over. They're dead. They just don't know it yet. Jesus closed the book on the powers of darkness. Their fate is final. It has been determined. A few other things that Jesus closed the book on. Jesus closed the book on divine revelation. He is the true and final light. Let's turn to John chapter 1. We get a couple of really interesting ideas about what Christ is. John chapter 1 begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word word in the Greek is logos. And it means uh, that not only was Christ present in the beginning with God, but the Spirit of, of Christ was the speech which God spoke forth at creation and through which God brought everything into being. Christ is the eternal word which God speaks forth and which makes things so. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it could also be translated, the darkness has not comprehended it. The light is greater than the darkness. This is another way we can be assured of our victory. The darkness will never overcome the light. It cannot comprehend it. But he is the speech that, came, that brought everything about. He is the light that enlightens men. Once you've seen the light the final light, there is no more need um, for mouthpieces for God. God has come and dwelt with us and spoken for himself in his Christ. He is the one priest of righteousness. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 14, and we've covered this recently, so we don't have to turn all the way back there, uh, but there is a, a weird little incident where Melchizedek, who is a character we don't see really before or after in the Old Testament, comes out and blesses Abraham with an offering of bread and wine. And Melchizedek's name means priest, uh, or is, he is called a priest of the Most High God, and his name means priest of righteousness, or my God is righteousness. Zechariah 3, you get this image of Joshua the high priest with a crown on his head. It's a foreshadowing of the Messiah. The idea is that the, the Messiah would not just be a savior, not just be a liberator, not just be a king, but that he would be a priest, one who goes before God. The priesthood of Aaron had its failings. The priesthood during the period of the, of the United Kingdom was imperfect. Every human representative who presumes to go before God is an imperfect person, a sinner. 
one unqualified to do the work which they have been tasked with. Now, in the old law, there were uh, priests were were ordained as a as an official office, and this was part of the will of God and part of the law of God. But they could not save. They could not even intercede perfectly for other men because they themselves were corrupted. But in Christ, we have one who goes before God who is perfect, who has been tried in all ways as we are, who understands perfectly well what we go through and what we experience here. And despite his understanding, despite his being like us, he is still perfectly divine and able to commune completely with God. We all sometimes lose sight, I think, of what a blessing this is. We don't have to worry anymore about whether uh, the one who goes before God on our behalf is doing the right work, is qualified, is actually interceding for us. We know that he is and that he will do it completely as he does everything. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11 and going through verse 14. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that, that have come, then through, uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Hebrew writer says, Failed and corrupted human beings offered sacrifices and performed rituals that were for the purification of the flesh. And if that's so, how much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish, purify or cleanse us, our consciences, from dead works, that meaning the works that could not do anything to save us, now we serve a living God. And His blood will do even more than those priests of old uh, who offered sacrifices continually for the atonement of their people. With Christ, it's one and done. One sacrifice for all time. One pouring out of blood to cover the whole world. He is the perfect priest. The only one qualified to go before the Father and represent us, speak for us. We have him on our side. He's called our advocate. That word advocate, it, it has a legal meaning. It's like a defense attorney. It's the one who advocates for you in court. Christ is your defense attorney. So we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. That's not such bad news when you have Christ defending you and you've been assured that he will 
defend you, will intercede for you. Christ closed the book on divine revelation. There is no longer a need for another word. He has given the final word. He is the true light. There is no standard beyond him. The entire revealed scripture culminates in his coming and in his offering of his divine light to us and the grace that he poured out at Calvary. Last thing that Jesus closed the book on. Jesus closed the book, or will close the book, on time and all existence at the end of all things. He will be the final judge. There is a vengeful aspect to the messianic prophecies that I think sometimes makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We don't like to think of Jesus as one who comes conquering. But this is how the first century Jews thought of the Messiah. This is what they expected. They expected a general. They expected a warrior. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah chapter 63 and verses 1 through 6 says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my, arm, so my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. It's a pretty intense passage. The image is the messianic figure comes marching, and his, blood, or his clothing is splattered in blood. And the prophet asks, what have you been doing? And he explains, he's been treading the nations. It's an image of judgment, the final judgment. It's an image that's echoed in Revelation chapter 19. And it echoed quite consciously. Uh, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. John says, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will not return this time as a teacher or as a ruler, but as a judge. And he will judge everything and everyone in the end of all things. It's a terrible thought to be one of the ones that Jesus says in Matthew 7, he never knew, he was not with. Matthew 7, uh, in verse 21 through verse 27. We all know it, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read it for our, our benefit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Building your house on the rock or building your house on the sand, it's all, it, I always have heard it taught and it, it, the application holds true. It's about how you build your life, how you live your life. And if your life is founded on the rock, it will stand. It will hold firm even when the storm and the flood beats on it, and tries to overtake it. If your life is not built on the rock, it's built on the sand, it will fall. But you can also think about this as being related to what he just said. That many will say, didn't we do these things for you? And he will say, I never knew you. The judgment will be a flood of sorts. Not a literal flood, but a torrent of power emanating from God. And it will test everyone who stands in judgment. And it will be revealed who will stand and who will fall. The test will be, if you have built your life on the rock, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, if you have made his words your words and his life your life. It's a terrible thought to not be known by Christ, but if we have built our house on the rock, we have assurance. And that's what I want to end on. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, we won't turn there, we don't have time, but you can study it if you want. I think most of us know it. Solomonic writer says, God will bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Again, 
It will be a final judgment, and that is a terrifying thought. But let's look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, which we're going to study this coming week, uh, and we'll actually get to double up on Romans class, because Mark's going to be gone on Sunday, so I'll teach an extra Romans class Sunday morning. Um, And we'll be covering Romans chapter 8, so this will be a good dovetail to that. God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. But friends, we've been given assurance like no other in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 1. We'll start in verse 1. I'll read through verse 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for all sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you... Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have assurance of life through the Spirit who dwells in us. If we have made Christ the center of our lives and the center of our hearts, we will dwell with Him. We will be raised with Him to glory. Skipping to verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we have been saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait with patience. The idea of that waiting with patience is not that, well, I hope one day I'm going to be raised and have a new body and hopefully God will find me worthy. No. 
That patient expectation, that patient waiting, is a confident expectation. Paul says, if we see it, it's not really hope. When we get there, we won't have to hope anymore. We won't have to trust anymore. It will be in front of us, the glory of God. But in the meantime, we're hoping for what we do not see, not as those with a wish and a dream, but as those who know the truth, who know what's coming, and who wait for it patiently, like you wait for a loved one who's been gone on a long journey and is coming home, and you'll welcome him when he gets here. Our Lord has gone away for a time. He ascended to the heavenly realms. But he is not really away in any sense. He is with us. He remains with us in spirit. We have been equipped by him. We've been given the tools that we need. He has gone from our sight, we could say. But we will see him again. He will return again. And all of us, and all the faithful for all time, will see with their own eyes the glory of God descending from heaven on the clouds, declaring the end of all things, the judgment that is coming, and the making new of everything in the power of God through Christ. Jesus closed the book. He closed the book on prophecy. He closed the book on sin and death. He closed the book on the powers of darkness. He has closed the book on divine revelation. He is the final light. And he will close the book on everything that exists and judge all in the end of all things. At the end of time, Jesus Christ will close the book. Will you be in his book of life? If you've not known him, know him and believe him. Believe his gospel that it has the power to save. Then confess his name before men. Repent of your sins. Turn yourself toward the will of God and allow Him to correct you. Submit yourself to baptism. Enter into His covenant through the washing of your sins and then follow Him as He instructed His disciples, follow me. Whoever would be a disciple of our Lord, we invite you to come today. If you have any need, please come as we stand and sing.